Welcome to Set Climate Talks, Centre for Climate and Energy Transformations podcast. This episode is a recording from an event held at Hordeland Arts Centre on the 14th of May 2019. Siddharth Sareen, postdoctoral fellow at SET, invited textile artist Margrethe Kolstad Brekke and professor of energy policy Benjamin Sovacool to discuss art and academia's role in the energy transition debate. The conversation followed a guided tour of Margrethe Brekke's solar exhibition, Potential Exceeds the Demand. The exhibition presents a series of new works based on key questions that are currently defining the complex and messy process of transitioning into renewable energy systems. The exhibition runs until the 28th of July 2019 at the Hordeland Arts Centre in Bergen. All right, let's, uh, let's get the show on the road. So I'm really happy to, uh, to see all of you here. It's a special day and uh, really happy to have um, two very special guests here. Um, Margrethe Brecker is the artist you've just met and ha- been escorted through her amazing exhibition by. Um, Benjamin Sovacool is one of the preeminent researchers on, uh, on energy governance, among other things. And uh, he's just arrived uh, some hours ago to town from uh, uh, Sussex. And um, I'm Siddharth Sareen, I'm a researcher at the Centre for Climate and Energy Transformation and uh, I've been part of a conversation with uh, Margareta over the last uh, several months where we've discussed the role of the arts, um, culture, academia, social imaginaries of energy transitions. What you saw here has to do with looking at different kinds of ways of imagining and understanding energy transitions but also solutions. And that's also something that we find very much present in Benjamin's uh, body of work where he's looking at issues of energy transitions cutting across questions of justice, cutting across socio-technical and political economic questions. And what I really want to uh, invite both of you to do today is to have a conversation about different roles that art, that academia can play in bringing energy transitions more into public debate, in increasing public understandings and also in engaging with the public to, to have back and forth learning. Um, and to set up that conversation, I thought it would be best if Margreta took the floor first and gave us a little insight into your work and perspectives and then followed by Benjamin and then we can chat a bit. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm Margaret. Uh, I'm a textile artist uh, educated here in Bergen. And when I was uh, a student, uh, these graphs that some of you from the natural sciences might recognize was sort of the backdrop um, of everything that uh, I I was thinking, learning and producing. Uh, The data behind what was then uh, called the the Great Acceleration and uh, the discussion on whether or not humanity is a geological force. Um, which um, I guess is now pretty much established that we are. But then also, like in these years, the Anthropocene became kind of um, a cultural uh, era or a cultural uh, concept. So uh, just to like, um, and um, to sort of entering that mindscape, 
when it was so still kind of narrow, it made like all of these things that we were dealing with in everyday life sort of absurd since uh, uh, like we were all so um, surrounded by this uh, very strong sense of the cognitive dissonance, the, the massive gap between the also what what was expected to be produced in the cultural sector and this uh, this like the apocalyptic sublime emerging in the in 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 the in the in the background so so that kind of and then it is like as norwegians were also filled of uh, with guilt like all of like how the acceleration of the practical world that we depend on has been um, hockey stick shaped while maybe the theories and the knowledge uh, that we've been developing in our sector has not been moving that uh, fast so like both uh, like the normative in how to the what kind of um, things we should produce it sort of felt out of context like you would do ecological looking projects on the surface but then always know that we are like all partners in crime of these massive structures uh, that are very much out of our control with, um, you know, like, uh, for example, just uh, global trade, uh, eight doubling since the 70s, uh, where still like a lot of the theories when were produced, that we were using in the art sector were produced. So this uh, very, so, like, sort of, um, sense of uh, the absurd in the in the everyday life i guess was the main uh, uh, main inspiration for everything i did as a student and um, and um, and then also generated like uh, a strong need to kind of uh, understand um, what could be produced or try to understand what could be produced uh, which is a constructive narrative in times like these so then I did um, I had sort of, I've had two strands uh, in the years, like five years now since I finished studies. And one was to, to explore like the old, the utopian tradition, which has been a very, a very strong presence in uh, cultural production in the West. Uh, and I framed it in a 500 year jubilee of uh, Sir Thomas More's uh, Utopia, which was published in 1516. I had a lot of uh, projects in Russia, and these uh, letters kind of became um, uh, a tool. That uh, these were it was like um, an alphabet that Sir Thomas More made for fun, together with his book about the imaginary island, and uh, in uh, published in 1516, when also like the printing press was quite new, and um, so like the technological development in the Renaissance. Is kind of part of the picture of the of uh, um, coming up with uh, yeah the, what became the cultural history of utopias together with the, the humanist uh, aspects. Um, yeah, so this is like the latest thing that we, it was on Hestutstillinger, the the annual uh, uh, exhibition uh, of um, in in Oslo. Um, so I did I used a lot of uh, patchwork. Uh, patchwork um, uh, motifs as well, which is um, part of another 
background for me as a textile art student. I was very interested in uh, something called the Underground Railroad Quilting Code, which I explained to those of you that were on the tour. It's the background for that uh, installation of uh, frames in the back, since um, uh, which um, in the paradigm shift uh, around um, when the and uh, uh, at the end of sla slavery, then uh, patchwork and uh, codes in patchwork is uh, was an element that might have had like uh, significance. So um, yeah, so that's been like uh, part of my practice. But then also um, one thing I was very curious about was if it would be possible to make um, to uh, reproduce the narratives from the. Uh, from renewable energies and uh, the technological development happening in that sector through my art uh, works. Uh, and for that, like um, I remember we were here in 2015, uh, a group of artists that made a publication protesting the 23rd um, Konstitusjonsrunde, the test reeling in the Barentsi. And I remember that we were like sort of uh, unresolved on uh, what, like, yeah, so what is, we are all depending on energy of some sort. What is the alternatives? So then I started to go to gatherings in the local center of commerce. That's the proper word for Bergen Næringsråd. And I met uh, this guy, which is, um, an, uh, he's a champion of acrobatic hanglider and an investor in uh, airborne wind energy, which is, uh, power generated by kites. And since uh, I'm a textile artist, I thought that would be a good narrative to promote. Yeah, so this is like um, how it will work. Uh, small, small wind farms uh, generating more energy than uh, the sea. Like I think 10% uh, physical structure will generate the same kind of energy as a big Siemens windmill, if, if it will work. Um, and it, they, this is invention coming from, uh, it was kite surfers first uh, uh, observing that it was power generated by the wires up to their kites. So it's sort of like a juicy, fresh narrative I thought uh, to work with back then. So that is uh, why like these sails in the exhibition is made <coughs> of darkroom, because I started uh, working with these guys making um, the public art about the airborne wind energy and also got a collaboration with an Italian hang glider factory um, to make uh, sculptures that can actually fly. And uh, the hang glider, of course, is also a very strong symbol since it's like it now in earlier in May, it was 500 years since Leonardo died. So it is like also this kind of a hybrid symbol of everything uh, uh, that kind of frames uh, Western uh, modernity. And also the hang gliders, they could fly, they could start to fly in the 50s and 60s since they need um, synthetic materials to be strong and light at the same time. So that it, it is sort of the, it, it, this is what we are, this is what we depend on. It is both, it is, it is uh, for better or for worse, what is uh, modern humanity. So this is uh, the um, um, patterns that you will see also in the, um, inside of the um, one of the sails it is what i call the the great the next great acceleration pattern block and it is composed i'm repeating a bit from the tour i'm sorry it is uh, it is composed about um data from drawdown the the quantity of uh, 
gigaton of reduced CO2 on the top estimated solutions to to climate change with refrigerant management out in the, as the biggest one and then onshore wind, uh, f food waste, uh, education of girls. So this is, it is like complexity entering the picture in 2017 when Drawdown was published. And it is combined with um, the SDG colors, it's the 17 colors. And the path, the rhythm is made of, uh, if you remember, solar impulse, the flight the first solar plane flight around the world, which was done in 17 legs. So this is like the, the different distances um, um, making the rhythm. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking of it as an emblem of the, this energy transition that we are in and the, the paradigm shift and the structural solutions that we will need, like those comp components that both all of these nuts and bolts and also like the charismatic, the, the good stories, which would be solar impulse. And it is like the SDG would be like the utopian alphabet of our times. Okay, so another thing happening, I, I'm, I guess I'm running out of time. Uh, in these uh, five years I've been working on this was the establishment of the energy lab, which is also like representing a massive paradigm shift in sort of uh, happening quietly in the local university. And, uh, from, uh, and uh, from going to like, so, so uh, from having to deal with, like go to the private sector and uh, get all my narratives from the capitalists and be very counterintuitive. I can now get like this, like it is, it is things are happening on uh, the availability and communication of the objective, um, yeah, the SS like verified solutions. And that I think will now, especially maybe after, uh, yeah, after um, the paradigm shift created by this girl, which I think if you, we are back into the end of slavery, it, it could be compared to the invention of the button in Wedgwood factory in Stoke-on-Trent, uh, after a long process of different grassroots movements connecting. And then, so a lot of people, like I've seen it written uh, many places, that comparison, and people also waiting for the button. The, the this was the invention of the political button and she would be the equivalent and the shift of like the momentum gathering and maybe like the as um, as the sort of the there was the the, the um, uh, revolution in the prices in PV in 2014 and the paradigm shift happening inside of the sector at that year perhaps now like this the, the broader paradigm shift is uh, Coming. So I'm right now like in the middle of thinking forward on how to um, how to continue working because like that uh, Greta Thunberg she should change everything that I'm doing. We're entering a new phase. So I'm I'm moving to a small village in the in, in among the mountains where they have like this solar mirror and I'm thinking maybe it time now is red like maybe we're ready for uh, starting to apply funding for a solar punk academy of some sort, like it, things that have been very narrow and like small, uh, small movements is now ready to become really mainstream and, and the bit broader society see that we need that kind of things in a different way that we've done before. And I will continue working with this sketch, which is the, the most difficult to sail to make in there. Uh, because it is, there is like uh, the most inspiring thing is like just the absurdity, uh, the surrealism of imagining how like all the nuts and bolts 
in society will change. All of these, like when, like when all of these things that will are creating noise on all sides will be implemented, how how that will actually be. So yeah, okay. So I probably talked too much and too long, and uh, and will give the word to back to you. <laughs> Thanks, Margaret. I think we'll. I'm going to stand anyway, but I'll, I'll speak into the microphones for the for the podcast. So, so hello, I'm, I'm Benjamin Sovacol, and I can speak without slides if if you really need me to uh, from the University of Sussex, um, and I'm here to talk about humanizing energy transition. So it's less about my work as an individual and more kind of about what we've considered to be an important research agenda about equity and justice in the low carbon transitions that McGrath talked about, but also Greta and others keep talking about things like smart meters and electric vehicles uh, and wind turbines and even nuclear power. And I think the first thing I wanted to show, which will hopefully show up miraculously any, any minute now, is, uh, or not, Yes. There we go. Oh, yes, hooray. Can you make it full universe. screen? Is that is that possible? There's a historian of technology uh, called John Stoudemire, who's an American. You probably never read him, but he had an intriguing idea that technologies like energy systems and transport systems are engines and mirrors. They're engines in the sense that they drive economic development. And they drive the provision of new services, whether it's light or heat or mobility. Just play, right? <laughs> but they're also mirrors in that they reflect our values. And also, if we talk about justice, they reflect our inequalities and patterns of poverty and overconsumption and abundance and capitalism. And so the first thing I, I wanted to really distill high-level things from our work is we probably shouldn't be surprised that the global energy system itself can both reflect and entrench the very inequalities we've all been struggling with as people concerned about justice and equity. And I think anyone who sees this slide, which is from the International Energy Agency, so not a slide known for its progressiveness, you can see, right, the people in New York, which is where Donald Trump is from, consume the same amount of energy as the 800 million people in Sub-Saharan Africa. And if you take a justice approach like that of John Rawls, who talks about this thing called the veil of ignorance. When you think about what is just, you don't know where you'll be born right, in society. I'm not American by choice. Uh, none of us chooses our ethnicity or our gender. We are born into it. Uh, and so you have a much greater likelihood of being born here into the 800 million people consuming minimal energy services as you do the urbanites and the wealthy of, of New York. Um, and we often take who we are for granted, but. Rawls' thought experiment underscores the hypothetical nature of how unjust our society is, given that you have a much greater chance of being in the part that lacks access. And it can also, the energy system can create new vulnerabilities. It doesn't just entrench vulnerabilities as, as a mirror. It can also be an engine that creates new types of inequality. And I, um, there's a group called the Global Alliance for Clean Cookstoves that has a whole campaign about gender and energy, and I'm still amazed that today the most dangerous thing most women do in the world isn't drugs or walking at night uh, or visiting unsafe places, it's cooking. How they use fuel in the home to cook. 
currently kills 4 million women and children a year. That's 11 deaths a minute. It's more than HIV, malaria, um, and if we continue to make the advances in epidemiology that we hope, more people will die from cooking in 2030 than HIV, AIDS, and malaria, and tuberculosis combined. Right? So the energy system is not fair and equal. Mm -hmm. Issues of justice are front and center, and it is affecting, you know, 80% of these deaths are women and children under the age of five. And the third thing, apart from the fact that our energy systems can be mirrors and engines, is energy policy. And we teach this at SPRU, and I'm sure people at University of Bergen also talk about a lot of these complexities. The act of addressing these types of issues isn't clear-cut. There is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all solution like a carbon tax or a feed-in tariff. And I think energy and climate policy is always about managing trade-offs. Someone always loses in these transitions that we do. And this is a 10-year-old coal miner from northern India. And I put this up here because the number one solution that India has taken to addressing this problem which is the most acute in India, by the way. They have the highest percentage of population dependent on unsafe cooking devices and practices. And in India, the number one cause of death is cooking. It is not heart disease, it is not malnutrition, it is not uh, water pollution or, or cholesterol, it is cooking. The solution there has been mass electrification by coal. And they want coal to be affordable, which then means that they tolerate things like child coal mining because it keeps the prices low. So this lump of coal that this poor boy is harvesting will literally save the lives of women and children. There's a great depressing trade-off. Who is to say that it's right that this child gets paid a dollar a day and spends most of his probably shortened life, because he's going to get silicosis, um, to help liberate other women and children? Or in the example of China, sticking with coal, I'm not just going to vilify coal, but uh, sticking with coal, China now has more than a million people with black lung disease. I think it's pneumoniacosis is, is the technical term. But China also has a grid that reaches 99.5% of their population. So again, these trade-offs. Is it fair that these coal miners will suffer debilitating effects for the rest of their lives from diseases they got in a coal mine to provide the modernization and industrialization that have helped China uh, become one of the most progressive and, uh, I guess, industrialized countries in the developing world. They're set to be the biggest economy in about 10 years that will overtake the U.S. And they are already the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. Or closer to home and switching technologies, uh, nuclear power. These are the thyroid cancer victims from Chernobyl, but this photograph was not taken in 1986. It was taken in 2010. And yes, this boy is not 30 years old. He is nine. There are still extremely high rates of thyroid cancer and birth defects in Belarus and Ukraine. Yet, it was nuclear power at places like Chernobyl that enabled Eastern Europe to modernize, and eventually for the Ukraine in particular to become a democratic regime after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So again, it's these pernicious trade-offs. Is it worthwhile? Is it just to say that these cancer survivors should pay and suffer so that the other millions of people can provide or receive um, energy accesses and energy services. Or here, even closer to home in France, um, we've had research teams 
you should come to Sussex, visiting French wineries <laughs> as part of the research process because they've been one of the most severely depressed and displaced communities. This is Triscotin, which is in the lower Rhone Valley. And can you imagine if this was on the wine bottle? You know, would you be drinking this wine? Triscotin has had more than a dozen incidents, including the release of radioactive materials into the water supply. Right? And so the Appalachian that manages the wine there has seen its sales plummet 40%, and half of its wineries go bankrupt. So again, it's about trade-offs. The electricity from Triscotin, it's a massive facility, I think it's about 4,000 megawatts, goes to all France. Is it fair that the wineries that have to suffer, wineries that have been here for centuries, right? Tradition of French winemaking goes back, you know, earlier than Jesus Christ. They were making wine in these parts of France. And so I don't just vilify nuclear and coal, solar energy. We have also sent research teams to Petrofeld, which is in eastern Germany near the Polish border where they were hoped to have the next wave of industrialization, and they put all of their money and hopes in solar manufacturing. But anybody who's followed the German feed and tariff story knows, while it's produced really affordable solar energy, it's done so at the expense of communities going entirely bust, because there was a solar boom, German state invested a lot of money, and then the Chinese innovated in ways that weren't foreseen to lower the price of solar energy, so that now most solar panels aren't made in Germany anymore, they're made in China. But that means communities like, this is the Sun Park in Bitterfeld, which is completely empty. The Bitterfeld community has lost 30 billion euros worth of infrastructure, and then the city council had to then clean it up and dismantle it, so they got hit twice. They had to pay to build it, and then they got, had to pay to dismantle it. With, of course, the unemployment of 100,000 solar workers and collapse of pensions collapse of state investment funds. So again, and ironically, the solar transition has left behind the very workers in Germany who are making the solar panels designed to make it happen. And since we're not just talking about supply, many of the end-use devices that we even have in our pockets, like my mobile phone, or smart meters, or in-home displays, or smart appliances, or this computer, create flows of electronic waste. And I was amazed to learn in our research that 80% of the waste flows in the United Kingdom, which is where I work, go to one place in Ghana called Ogbogboshi. Uh, and very little of it is recycled. It is burnt, again, by many children uh, or women who are making less than a dollar a day. And the greatest single component of future electric waste streams is anticipated to be solar energy, solar panels. The number two biggest component will be electric vehicles. If you're looking at the projections from the International Energy Agency, they're projecting that by 2050, when there were about one million EVs, and 2050, the number will grow to a billion. So from one million to a thousand million in our lifetime, if we meet our carbon goals. Imagine what that will do to communities like this that are already handling these toxic flows of electronic waste at the back end of where a lot of these products go. And then finally, to bring it closest to home with Norway, the issue of the mineral extraction and the metals that we need for things like electric vehicles, I think I see six in the parking lot, rely on metals like cobalt, which is usually found with copper. 66% of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and anybody who works on governance knows it's not really a democratic republic, it's more of an authoritarian regime. 
which is incredibly poor. They also have about 70% of the world's cobalt reserves. There are some NGOs that have done really sophisticated calculations that estimate that there's 100 minutes of child labor in every electric vehicle on the market. Tesla, BMW, Nissan. I don't think we'll buy Ford and GM here. But if you did, if you bought the, the Chevrolet Volt, the 100 minutes would also be in the Volt. And this shows we, we've sent research teams to Lubumbashi and Kowizi, which is in the southwestern, southeastern part of the Congo. And yes, you have children who are mining cobalt, uh, which can be toxic. Or this is five children, there's actually one inside, that are looking through tailings and slurry, which is like the waste of the waste, to try to find precious metals, including copper and, and cobalt. And this just, I guess I, I gave you two slides for the Congo. Um, this also shows you the hazardous nature of some of the artisanal mines. They're literally so poor, the miners there, they don't even have ladders. And sometimes they don't even have shovels. They're literally mining by hand. And you would just enter the cavern. And the number of accidents and landslides and drownings and deaths, electrocutions, and diseases that occur in these mines can be quite significant as well. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, they estimate about 25% of the mining workforce is children under the age of 18. So what does this do for you? I'm almost done. Now that I've totally saddened you and I'm glad we have alcohol, although it's depleted. Um, what can we do about it? So what? What does our research tell us other than exposing and documenting these types of tensions and trade-offs? Well, I have two thoughts. One is that I think as much as I like the way that the scientific community currently frames climate change as an environmental problem, that's not the only way to frame it. As the slides that I've shown hopefully illustrate, it isn't just about the climate, it isn't just about the economy, it's about ethics and morality and justice. It is about what is fair, it's about what is right, it is about what is democratic, it is about what is dignified, and it is about what is socially acceptable to all of us. And that, I think, reminds us that we can also reframe this process of low carbon decarbonization as a compelling justice issue. It is a moral issue in which we can use the language of justice, even utilitarian justice components like how we distribute <coughs> benefits and burdens, or procedural elements about fairness and impartiality and decision making, or cosmopolitanism about a basic respect for human rights and dignity, or recognition about a special appreciation for the vulnerable, indigenous people, the elderly, the rural, the homeless, and other minorities. And I think that we can create, as we've tried to do in our work, which is, this is very normative, so I'm very uncomfortable with these types of things sometimes. We can create these principles that we can use as criteria to evaluate what we do in our own decisions. So when Siddharth here is thinking about buying his next car, which maybe never will happen, he can think, well, is the car that I'm buying going to promote equity? Is it going to promote responsibility? Is it going to promote right, principles of, of affordability for other generations? Or we make these decisions about where we invest, or about the careers that we have, or about the politicians that we endorse, or the energy projects that we support, offshore winds, unconventional gas, CCS, the next wave of nuclear technology, second generation biofuel, hydrogen fuel cells. When we think about these high-tech options, we should also evaluate them not just on cost and performance, but on how they perform to these very moral issues. So and in sum, this is the last slide, I promise. 
Um, what I think this means for, for us and for, for where we go in terms of research is, is this notion of energy justice is a very good conceptual tool. So for those of you that don't just want to do cost-benefit analysis, it's a way of reminding you that well, you can look at the same issue in very different lenses as issues of distributive justice and procedural justice and cosmopolitan justice and recognition justice. If we have any engineers in the room that will admit to being engineers, Anyone? Or designers? A few? Kind of half-raising. <laughs> it's a reminder to those of you who are building these systems that what you do isn't neutral. There are hidden values and assumptions and even moral codes and ethics built into how we do these types of things. For instance, currently, built into the way that we make Norwegian electric vehicles is the idea that we source cobalt and most of the manufacturing somewhere else so it doesn't show up. Uh, on the balance sheets, on the carbon balance sheets that we have in, in Europe. And that's not just EVs, the same with wind turbines and solar panels, many of the other low carbon products that we want to decarbonize with. And I think finally, as I was just saying with that checklist, it is a decision making tool. When we do make choices about voting, investment, purchases, and consumption, um, don't, you know, don't forget that what you can do is, as McGrath said earlier, we are all partners in crime. Right? And so you can vote with your dollars and with your consumption patterns and practices in ways that are more or less just. And with that, I'm going to show you Albert Einstein, who has a really nice quote that I quite liked. I mean, you can do energy justice as a conceptual tool, as an analytical tool, and as a decision-making tool. But you, there's also a fourth reason, and that is meeting Einstein's call that we can really only call ourselves civilized when as a human civilization, we create decent conditions for all. Um, and so I guess you can also think more about justice and the kind of noble pursuit of making our society as equal as it can be. And with that, over to you, Sid. Here. Well, thanks. I think I'll, uh, I'll take us right into the discussion here and uh, I'm just moving up because uh, Judith here is uh, going to record this into a podcast in Worker Magic so it all comes together so later on you can revisit it if you like. Um, if I were to juxtapose your talks you've shown us the importance of on the one hand reaching out to give people the sense that energy transitions are worth engaging with they're exciting they're important they are full of possibility and on the other, you've uh, brought us down to the ugly bits and said that there's a lot that we've been getting wrong, that we continue to get wrong, and that if we don't take a step back and reconsider how we're rushing ahead, then we're going to create more problems than we solve potentially, or not solve problems at all. So my, I have a kind of twin question to each of you, and that is, which is the part that is sort of an obvious go-to where you think in your respective communities, whether they're academic, cultural, policy, political, just friend circles and family, which, which are the things that you think are most obvious that we should be doing and can do? Um, what are the things that are the biggest blocks that you don't really see as being obvious that we'll even manage to solve? So, um, like um, to start with that? Okay. Um. Uh, to respond to your presentation, I guess like the special with the paradigm shift with the energy transitioning happening right now, it is that it also happens in this 
together with this uh, revolution in information. And a word like uh, social, what's it called, corporate social responsibility, it didn't exist around the, like when the, in the shift of the millennia. And also like there is uh, this emerging collective language uh, dealing with the complexity of uh, all the wicked problems that energy transition will consist of. And where there will be no uh, perfect uh, solutions, there will be wicked problems, there will be different kinds of compromises. And uh, the job now will be to estimate what is the, the, the smallest giants, the best. Which is so it it is like uh, it is will it will have to be a lot of interdisciplinary communication that needs to work and then there is like the 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 United Nations Agenda 2030 it was uh, you know it was um, criticized a lot when it first came because it was so messy and difficult to understand but it is because it sort of frames all of this. And could uh, and, and and also like with the donut economics, which was feeding into the into the SDGs, as I learned from you, and Rutger Bregmer's uh, Utopia for Realists. It's a lot of you know. It's a very fertile uh, climate right now for uh, for new big ideas that have been developed over some years since the internet was invented and implemented only like 20 years ago so it just needs it needs uh, i think some like uh, um superheroes of uh, communication coming out from your field which will since like the the future of the language of the future throughout all of the fossil era has been dominated by the um, narratives of the market from the market like since the nephew of uh, freud you know sold freedom sticks in the 20s the 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 the, the future has been the, the the you know field of people selling things and now and also that there is like this um yeah like with um before uh, the energy lab came as I, I went to the business school in oslo which was uh, together with the bergen Næringsråd, where i could get information to work with for my and and which was like the most forward thinking in terms of the technological solutions and then also like a lot of nuance happening in in these like the the old enemies of what was like the art world and the cultural sector and we are all cultural marxists and so on so there is a, there is like all of this thing like with how to deal with the villains which will be part of how to communicate and uh, and i think and then i don't know i have i don't have any any like good um <laughs> recipes for that but I had like this experience in I was in a conference in Monshogorsk which is like this a small one of these small post-industrial Russian towns just south of uh, Murmansk and um, and then when I came there I learned that uh, it was Norilsk you know the mining company um, that has been like famous in Norway for the pollution coming over the border they were the ones paying for the conference and that was sort of under communicated to me because I thought I wouldn't go uh, in that sense, but then, and this was like this broken down region where there is corruption in all of the municipalities, but Norilsk, this um, Russian evil corp, uh, uh, is ha had this like the, the conference was on how to uh, regenerate city life with uh, arts and you know textile arts soft stuff. So it is like it is, a, and and also another part of this is that uh, one of the 
uh, young women working in Norilsk. She'd been educated in Bode, where some of you might know there is this professor of ecolo anarchistic ecological thinking. I can't remember his name now, but he's always in these uh, sustainability conferences with long hair. Uwe, Uwe something. Uwe. Uh, yeah, okay, but the, the thing is like that, uh, all of this, like what has been these old uh, bastions and so on, uh, there is a lot of movement uh, on who's, who's, who is the villain, who is constructive, who, who generates real change. So I guess that's sort of what I would respond to. Oh boy, it's my turn now, isn't it? Right, um, top that. Yeah, <laughs> so three thoughts as quickly as I can make them. One, don't take my presentation as somehow kind of indicating I'm against low carbon transitions or decarbonization, because I think the net benefits are still greater than the costs. Not that I think we should ever sacrifice these types of communities, but you know, if we're saving, under most systems of morality, if we're saving hundreds of millions of people and only tens of thousands have to suffer, most people would probably make that, that choice. I think the key is recognizing these types of externalities so we can better manage them and try to minimize them as much as possible. And don't presume that everyone wins in, mm. in this process of, of decarbonization. There are real losers. And sometimes they're actually paying with their lives. I think the second thing is, I'm, I'm a big fan of Eleanor Ostrom, who was the first and only woman to win the Nobel Prize in, in economics. And she had this notion of polycentrism, which is that when we address kind of common problems, you have multiple scales of action at once, across multiple scales. And I think one way of reading Ostrom is that that implies that if we're thinking about climate change, you have top-down efforts and bottom-up efforts at the same time. And I think it's kind of the role of the researchers in this room and maybe the policymakers and the planners and the so-called elites to work from the top down so we can work on creating policy mechanisms uh, and, and other types of, of uh, regulations and incentives and maybe penalties that focus on promoting decarbonization. So we kind of work at that top. And those types of policies can, over time, hopefully make a difference at, fighting emissions, but at the same time, we also work from the bottom up, and that's where we're working with our own households, and with grassroots initiatives, and with civil society, and artists, and libraries, and, and protest movements, and also doing our part to, to work in our own lifestyles, which, which does mean maybe eating less meat, and, and maybe walking instead of cycling, and, and doing all these other things that we're really reluctant to do, and, and, and that leads me to my, my third point, which is we we just finished a project that has a great name. It was called Hope, Household Preferences on Energy. And it was a, a four-year four -year project that was funded by JPI that ran in Norway and Sweden and Germany and France. So four northern, wealthy, mostly, European countries. And in that project, we monitored actual carbon footprints in households in each of the four mm -hmm. countries. So this isn't like simulations. It's like we went to their home, we interviewed them, we then tracked what they did for like many, many months, and each footprint was unique to the house. And then we had simulations or games, depending on which audience you're talking to, with the households to try to say, what are you willing to do to reduce your footprint? And in that process, two things came, to, came out really strikingly. One, the biggest components of these footprints, more or less, in most households was not energy, or at least not electricity. It was transport and mobility, and here it's not even cars, it's international air travel, followed by heat, so that is energy, and then diet, food, right? And so already, 
there seems to be kind of mismatch. Very rarely are we seeing discussions now that talk about changing your diet or changing aviation. We see a lot of stuff about buildings and cars and all that sort of stuff. However, the second finding from the study was that those areas, especially diet and transport, were the ones that households were least willing to change. They were all willing to do the electricity stuff and they were all willing to do the easy stuff. Uh, and they were willing to actually cut their footprints by about half. But it was all the low-hanging fruit. It was like not becoming a vegetarian, but eating meat one less day. And not giving up the car, but maybe I'll Uber it once a week. So for the other half of emissions, households won't do it themselves. They will have to be forced or coerced or controlled or incentivized. Again, different terms that may mean the same thing, which does imply that we won't do it on our own uh, and that we do need guided by strong policy or governance. Yeah, is this the Vestlands forskning was... Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, yes. And, Carl yeah, yeah. yes, they led the Norway. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I think like they did this because um, I've, I've worked with them. We did like podcasts. We were in his cabin and we, they had like this. <laughs> I've been to his cabin too. too Look at that. Involved, we have yeah. a, it's a very nice cabin. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I just wonder because like since uh, they, they, they collected their data, at least in Norway, like the word flyskam, it didn't mm. exist. So there is also like this massive organic thing with the social consensus yeah. and how is that calculated into this uh, process like where and the so social consensus has a direct effect on what this the market is uh. yeah. so how, how do you feel like that uh, is uh, calculated into the hope project and this behavior I mean the hope project was quite big it was like 12 partners across the four countries and there were other work packages that talked about social influence and processes of social influence and, and they are significant um, but I think even with those types of mechanisms in place, the final results from the whole project suggest that that social influence may get you as part of that 50% of what mm. households do, but not the other way of, 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 the, other, of the other 50%. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. Let me pick up on something here that I think has come up several times sort of, uh, on the sidelines, if you will. And I think I'll pose it to both of you in slightly different ways. Um, Benjamin, you've uh, founded a journal, you headed up uh, that, that several of us here are familiar with, the Energy Research and Social Science. And one of the purposes that I see that as serving is as a vehicle that brings together different kinds of communities within academia to speak mm -hmm. a language that there wasn't necessarily a platform for. Um, you've helped create that platform and it's quite a vibrant space. So I'm, to you, my question is, is that a way of being able to push forward um, the kind of conversation that we're having here of what is there really a need for, what are the correctives in the ways we've mm -hmm. discussed um, problems in society that haven't necessarily been framed in the ways that you see them as problems today and not necessarily even as problems but as opportunities and you talked about morality. Um, that's, that's a big word, that's a problematic word for many people. Um, is it about changing partly the platform on which those kinds of uh, conversations become possible? To you, Margareta, I guess the same question I'd, I'd pose differently. You've said in the course of uh, this exhibition and, uh, and switches in your own work over the last years that you see uh, a need for a different kind of art, that there's a cultural scene that is missing some kind of connection with very real questions that have urgency, that have enormous societal implications, environmental implications, and that 
in your work going forward, you are interested in finding ways to do more and more of that communication that connects the cultural sector with mm -hmm. science-based, uh, evidence-based uh, um, claim-making. So to, to pose it as a question that applies to both, but in sort of these different um, ways that you're engaged, are there ways of actually changing the platform, given that the forces in the world that we live in are quite strong and the ones that prevail are not necessarily the ones that are going to help us solve things. There's uh, strong neoliberal and capitalist traits to the, w the ways the world is run. Um, are you able to harness that with a different platform? Uh, do, you, do, do you think about this consciously and what does that conversation with yourself uh, look like? Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, thank you for mentioning the journal, Energy Research and Social Science. I'm happy to share any article from it ever. Uh, by request, but I don't think my agenda was that concrete with creating a journal, and I think any editor who would create a journal and try to say the journal should accomplish these things is probably in for either failure or quite a shock when you know authors have their own agency and reviewers have their own agency. But I think for me, the, the passion behind the creating the journal was, I mean, I am a social scientist, and in the energy and climate space, it's getting better now, but for a long time, we were really marginalized. In the same way that I think the social sciences tend to marginalize the arts and humanities, mm -hmm. we're both marginalized by the natural and physical sciences. Mm -hmm. And that shows up in funding patterns, right? There's a 30 to 1 bias in research funding. $30 goes to building tech and like $1 goes to understanding behavior or policy or justice or, or equity. So we created the journal. Um, and it's not just me. I mean, it is a vibrant. We've got 60 people on the editorial board. We've had 1,200 articles. And we've had 15,000 reviewers. So really, it's that collective community. But the journal was kind of about showcasing this is what social science, good social science, rigorous, mixed methods, comparative, insightful, critical social science can do. It's what we can accomplish as a community. Right? We, we can provide rich, contextual research that can inform a lot of the things that we're talking about here um, within the brackets of its own limitations and, and assumptions. And I guess the final way of answering your question is we do have themes we inductively have these themes the journal publishes on, and there is a whole theme on justice and poverty, which we call energy equity and justice. And certainly that theme, we have one or two articles every month, that theme is kind of what you're saying. It's people talking about fighting capitalists and promoting justice and trying to attack hegemony and power, and that's really important, but it's not the only theme. We have nine other themes, including social acceptance, including energy and behavior, politics, governance. We even have one on demographics which talks about issues of gender and race and class and age. We have a piece coming out on age and, and ageism. So I think in that way, the agenda is much too broad to fit only within normative aspects, but that is certainly a healthy part of the agenda. And I think the more that we can have discussions that do inject morality into the debate, maybe the faster we'll realize solutions. Mm. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess... Um, um, what I would like to answer to that is um, when I, I, I decided to move to, to a small town in Norway some time back and uh, where there is like it would be a very good place to establish like an academic institution of some sort. So some months back I googled the National Center for Sustainable Transition uh, to see if there is uh, such a thing and actually it is a or up in uh, Landos, the local branch of uh, what's it called, the uh, um, transition town, 
they have a, they have a, a, a house called Lysthuset, which is a national national center for bærekraftig omstilling, where they are doing uh, salsa dancing and pirouetting. <laughs> okay, but they do a lot of constructive stuff. But this is grassroots, and in Norway now we need like um, something equivalent to the Cicero, to Bjerkne Center, a big solid institution where all the eclectic. Uh, research, which is like at the core, there it is energy transition, and then it is all the humanoid, all the soft, like how to ed like education, of course, uh, all of that. Uh, so the, it needs ne the, it needs some sort of massive institutional <coughs> structure coming up. So for and the Norwegian broadcasters, like since I, I as mentioned in my talk, like one of the things that really got me annoyed last autumn was I traveled on the night train back and forth to the Nobel Peace Prize um, conference because the topic was how to solve climate change. And of the 19 uh, minutes, uh, uh, which was uh, like curated by uh, the top communicator at um, CICERO, it was 75 minutes of just re-describing uh, the apocalypse. And then it was Tina Saltvet, an excellent uh, uh, finance analytic yeah, that she she was talking a bit about um, economic gravity and she spent her 14 minutes on ac actually how things could be um, yeah like uh, on constructive progress so there is this uh, like uh, it is it is like a, a, an urgent need of streamlining the research which is relevant which we know now is is very complex because of the like um, the like how we know we are building an infrastructure for the future world and and it could be many things and the strongest forces will decide the lives of uh, you know millions and species and so on so uh, and so like no there is already quite a lot to, to continue follow up uh, there is a lot of collaborations between the climate scientists and the cultural sectors there's lots of you know really very good cultural projects um, uh, redistributing those narratives on like informing the public that climate change is happening and so on and uh, now and I think now like maybe with uh, Mathis here at the Hordaland Art Center and the energy director at UIB in the room there is the there is we can sort of start building a fundament of a new kind of in institutional bridge with between like this a more organized uh, sphere of researchers uh, which should be the trustworthy source uh, NRCO would go to, not the private, you know, uh, when they to ask for uh, the solutions and then and then you know, um, at to the extent that that would make sense, the cultural sector collaborating and nuancing in all, into all of these wicked problems, which will be the solutions. So I guess that's sort of what I reply to that. Right. We're nearing the close of the hour, and I'm going to ask a, a bit of a cheeky question, but uh, but also hope to end on a hopeful note. So, so it's a, a bit of a combination, if you will, and and that is from where you stand. Are there things that frustrate you when you look out at other sectors, at other people trying to do things, and you say this really doesn't make sense? If only they understood, then things mm. would look different. Do you feel that art understands? communication in a way that academia just doesn't with its journal articles, whereas do you feel mm. that 
you know, from academia that art is sort of on a different plane that doesn't necessarily engage sufficiently with practicality for people to take it seriously. And I'm stereotyping a little here and being provocative, but I guess the other, the flip side of that is, do you have an instance or two that comes to mind where you've really been struck by something that's caught you by surprise and said, huh, so there is a way that this makes sense, even though it's not apparent, if it's, it's not obvious in your sort of day-to-day -day way of organizing things or working towards the ends that you hope to champion, but you see the value of that diversity. And, and I'm, I'm curious if there's examples that come to mind. Oh, again, me? Go, go, go. Huh? Yeah. I guess maybe like one of my massive headaches this year have been to work on your sale while on the Facebook wall it's been the windmills. And then, uh, you know, like the age old or the milieu climate in Norway. We haven't yet, we, it, this should of course also be merged into like what is the eco uh, ecological compromise and what is the, you know, the global complexity. And it is, we have a lot of very strong voices in the, the DNT. I, 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 yeah, you know, we have a lovely network of cabins in the mountains and we are resourceful people enjoying our nature. So it is, uh, I think it is, again, it is, um, uh, I was in a, a church in Oesterset listening to the energy director in the, the room explaining very clearly like why, how about the movement of wind on land and how like wind on land is not always a good idea. And, and then, so I'm like, uh, I guess it's um, what I really feel like would make your voices needs to come more out in the public with whatever tools for, for the rest of us to have a, an, uh, to work on, to, to understand more and have a better, like, and also remember Acer and so on. So I think it's like whatever tools there is in the book of communication of those professionals looking at or yeah, the how infrastructure in the modern world actually works. That's what I think uh, the world needs now. Mm. Well, um, I'm going to give you two for one, Sid. There are two things that really irritate me and give me equally strong <coughs> headaches. Um, and one of them is about the academy itself. It's about colleagues, and I'm not going to name them. And even I do this a bit. But I think in academia, we get so obsessed with theory, and we engage so little with the real world. Or to use the parlance, we don't have impact. And I won't tell you who, but there was a director of, of a very big center of mine who gave a brilliant presentation about their research findings. And in the end, it was kind of really abstract. I said, how do you translate that into policy and change? Mm. That's not the point. I don't want it to be translated, this person said. And that's quite troubling to me. Mm. It's like in a world of a climate emergency and extreme poverty, we, are, we have the luxury in the academy of, of sitting and thinking all day. And I think it, it, it can be a struggle mm. to push my colleagues and myself sometimes because we're so focused on papers, 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 grading, 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 marking, 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 drinking coffee, mm. that we don't have any time for actually going in front of parliament, socializing, doing mm. protest movements, I mean, and engaging with the real world. Mm. The second thing that irritates me are, I wouldn't even call them scholars, but we've called them the kind of the technological evangelists who are convinced they've found the single solution to the climate problem. It's nuclear. No, no, it's mm. biofuel. It's hydrogen. And they're zealous in this single technology mm. solution. And when you try to challenge that solution with a healthy do dose of what we've called technological agnosticism, mm. 
they, their identity is threatened. I, I have been spit on. I've had things thrown at me because I would dare say, well, maybe the future shouldn't be nuclear. Maybe it should be efficiency or, or solar or, or wind. And equally, if I tell the wind people it should be solar or the solar people it should be wind, I mean, I think it's that kind of, this notion that there is a diversity of options and a diversity of perspectives and an inclusivity of ideas all together can we utilize them to, to solve the climate emergency. So I think the second thing we should help fight against is this overly simplistic notion. A colleague of mine calls it panacea bias, where we're convinced we found the single solution mm -hmm. and everything else that isn't that solution is a threat. Um, can be very dangerous, and we are diverting lots of resources into a lot of options that we already know can't save the climate in time, but they're still adhered to with this dogmatism. Hmm. Um, and I think those people are, in a way, threatening the planet and their inability to see alternatives. Hmm. Fair point. Well, I want to say I'm grateful for both of you firstly doing such inspiring work. I've, I've had the privilege to engage a bit and I've really enjoyed it and I look forward to more. Um, thank you for being engaging speakers today. Thank you. Thank you.